I remember a lesson from acting school. Uh, never put a cat on stage. I mean, I can't remember if it was an actual lesson or just something we talked about one time, but never put a cat on stage. They're just too interested. I mean, how is the audience going to focus on anything else but the toings and froings of a cat who seems to go where they please, paying no heed to the world around them? That, that toing and froing is far freer and more engaging than the actors who are bound by lines and blocking. Never put a cat on stage. Fire has a similar transfixing power. You know, we are able to sit and watch it flicker and burn and dance for hours. If you've ever been at, you know, a kind of campsite with a fire in the middle, all conversation seems just to fall away as the fire absorbs our attention. I mean, this transfixing beauty is so desirable that some hotels have a channel which just simulates a fireplace on TV. Now, because we know that, we know there is a human control over it. It has none of its transfixing attractiveness. But fire has something. I mean, even, even a pretty mediocre sermon can be elevated by just having a, uh, a Christ candle lit somewhere in view. It is unsurprising then that fire is an image often associated with God. Powerful, free, illuminating, brimming with creative and destructive potential. And it is this image that my guest today chose to utilize when titling her book on finding God in the pages of the Old Testament. This book is an exciting and accessible exploration of a God of wanderers and wonder, of the victims and the vulnerable, of friends and neighbors, a God of birds, a God of reckoning, a God who has hands up said, taste like fire. My name is Liam Miller, and this is a special episode of Love, Rinse, Repeat, co-presented with Insights, the magazine of the Uniting Church Synod of the New South Wales and ACT. And my guest today is Melissa Flora Bixler, pastor of Rayleigh Mennonite Church, graduate of Duke University and Princeton Theological Seminary. She is the author of Fire by Night, Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament, which you can pre-order now. Folks, wherever you are, clap your hands together as we bring Melissa out of the green room and welcome her to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Well, Melissa Flora Bixler, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thanks. Great to be here. You're welcome. It's, it's wonderful to have you. So uh, you've written Fire by Night, Finding God in the Page of the Old Testament, and, and so you spent some time there, you spent some time reading these stories, hanging out with these characters. So the, the Oscars were yesterday, we just record, we're recording day after the Oscars. So if you're pitching Hollywood, hey, we're going to make another great classic Old Testament movie to sweep next year's Oscars, what story, what character, who gets the movie, who gets the Hollywood treatment? Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, I think that it is deserving of my uh, feminist and womanist inclinations to choose the story of Yael with the starring role of Janelle Monet. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I think that would that would probably be the story that I, I probably gets undercut in a, in a lot of Christian circles that would would do to rise well to the Hollywood screens. And I think 
we could solidly pull a best supporting actress out of that out of that one. I dig it. I dig it. I think that's great. Yeah. We can, you know, exist in the wider world. We can then open it up to a wider judges cinematic universe, a la Marvel. I think you know we've got a lot of options here. Yeah, Judges is a, it's a tough book. I didn't do a lot with Judges in uh, Fire by Night. I took a few challenges on for myself, but man, there, it's, there's, there's some tough stories in there. A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I used to work in a university chaplaincy and I just always remind, you know, the, those in our group that, you know, biblical womanhood also includes driving 10 pegs into enemy general skulls. So just, just remember right. it's a broad, it's a broad tent. It's a broad tent indeed. <laughs> so, so turning to the book, I guess I, I often like to ask kind of an uh, kind of overarching question. I guess what was the itch that you were like just couldn't scratch and who you're like, you know what, I have to devote several months of my life to well, maybe longer to writing this book. Like it, it won't be satisfied until this is done. What was what was kind of gnawing at you or what voices or questions kept coming up? Like I can't ignore any longer the book must be written. Yeah, sure. I, you know, I uh, actually (laughs) wrote a couple book reviews about uh, from different, usually Mennonite perspectives on violence in the Old Testament. Um, And in each of those iterations, it felt like something was missing for me. It it was either sort of a sense of uh, word there's nothing for us to learn in this or the violence of this story is sort of this mess we have to clean up before we're willing to really engage the text. And it just seemed like there were some better ways to go about entering into those stories and into this tradition. Um, And so I had already, I I love preaching from the Old Testament. It's um, significantly more interesting to preach from the Old Testament than the New Testament, in in my personal opinion. And so I I already had this couple sermons that I preached that that I thought maybe this would be a more helpful way to think about how we um, who share these stories with with our, our Jewish neighbors and in many ways with our Islamic neighbors and and what does it mean to enter into these stories and and maybe a way that's different. So basically, instead of just writing uh, book reviews about things I didn't like, I I thought maybe I should be more proactive, <laughs> and that's how the book came to be. Excellent. Well, I'm glad it did. Uh, so kind of com- coming out of that, you know, your book doesn't kind of go like well, let's pick out the text of terror and explain how we like deal with them or, or, or comfort us that we can kind of sidestep them uh, in the contemporary context. We must reckon with the text that uh, mm-hmm. comes through. And, and you encourage us to read or, or hear read aloud um, even the most difficult, confusing, contradictory texts and allow ourselves to be interrogated. You know, allow our own destructive desires to be unmasked, our own uh, notion of enemies to be stung, uh, confront the exploitation of our time, consider the legacies in our texts and our communities. Um, could you just expand a little on this practice and, and what kind of led you to that and um, and this need kind of to allow ourselves to be brought into these scenes, to to linger with the characters whom at kind of first glance we might be like, actually, let's, let's part company. So I came to the Old Testament uh, in a sort of unusual way. I, I grew up like most evangelical Christians with sort of minimal exposure to 
to the parts of, to the old Testament, especially. Um, but I got the, you know, I got the basic stories, David and Goliath and Noah and the ark. Uh, but it wasn't until I got to college that I really, I, I took a class where I, I carefully read the old Testament and it, it just so happened that the professor I had was a graduate of a rabbinical college. She was not a rabbi, so she's a Christian, but but trained uh, under under rabbis, and um, she was the one who taught us to listen to the voice of the the rabbis of early Judaism. Uh, I I just assumed that that was sort of the way that Christians read the Old Testament was that we, that we assumed that these uh, people who developed a tradition within and then outside of, uh, of, Christ, of the, of our tradition of Christianity were authoritative voices. And what they, what they did was they paid attention to the details of scripture and every word meant something and, and the spaces and the gaps and the stories were significant when a character disappeared or when Abraham goes up the mountain and yet it's singular when he comes back down, you know, all of these things are charged with meaning. Um, it's not the sort of attempt to moralize or get some sort of ethics out of, out of the old Testament. You and when you actually get into the details of what our shared scriptures offer us, and it's incredibly complex and nuanced and I think reveals things to us that are often overlooked um, if we aren't willing to do that careful work of, of giving attention. And I think especially if we are looking for problems. Um, I... I was very, very lucky to have someone who taught me to see the Old Testament as a gift to be received rather than a problem to be solved. And if there's anything I hope that the church takes away from this encounter with the Old Testament, it's that it's a book of grace and mercy of a God who loves us consistently in spite of everything. And that that same God is how we understand anything about who Jesus is. We can't do it without um, what we learn in the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah, that's excellent. And it certainly comes across in the book, this, the, the beauty, the gift um, of the vision of God and humanity it comes through the Old Testament. And, and uh, yeah, it really was exceptional doing that. So I think the church will take that away, hopefully. Oh, great. Yeah, excellent. Thanks. <laughs> so so you mentioned there kind of this careful reading or this reading for detail. Um, some time ago on the podcast, I had um, Rabbi Shea held on, and he, he kind of had this um, quick partway through, which was the first rules to read slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was kind of talking about Torah, but he was also talking about just in life that that's such a countercultural move now where, where even when we get our news, we have one person talking and then three scrolls of um, additional news all coming at us at once. Mm-hmm. So, so we're all, you know, when we get, and I love Twitter, but like, you know, it, it teaches you to read fast and, and quickly. Yeah. Um, now you also develop a similar point. You're, you're in conversation with Ellen Davis early in the book uh, and you encourage that the, the slower we read, the more we will find words have made a home in us, a home within us. So I guess, how did you begin to read slowly? How do you develop that practice? How might others? Uh, and how did it transform your encounter with the text and, and I guess, through that encounter with God? Yeah. Well, one, 
opportunity for that is for people to attend morning prayer. And I, I grew up in the Episcopal church and in the Mennonite church now, but, but grew up in the Episcopal church. And, and when I was at Duke, I, I would go to morning prayer with Ellen Davis. And that's a time where these recitations of the Psalms, uh, oftentimes the same Psalms recited over and over again, till we sort of get that sense of them making a home within you and or opportunities for us to hear the scriptures as they were intended as prayers of the people said and said aloud memorized often um and i share a little bit in the book about the reorientation towards slow reading and the among the benedictines at saint john's abbey uh, where it's so slow it's kind of awkward and um, where you sort of are wondering when we're going to move on to the next line of the scriptures and you're sort of stuck there with these words that are still echoing around this great church that they abbey that they built there uh so for me oftentimes it's been the oral presentation of scripture and i think it's other people who hold us in in the words and perhaps like you're saying in a way that when we're reading it's just you know it's us on our own we can go as fast as we want um, and so those have been two practices that I've been introduced that have been meaningful to me yeah that's that's really good and I think you're right that, you know especially well I know I know myself you know you you wrestle with the idea that, well, I read all this. That was means it's a productive time of reading because look at how many pages I covered. Yeah, uh, right. And, and trying to subvert that is um, not only difficult, but, but I think is fruitful in many aspects of our lives when we can. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, scripture invites us into another's life. Uh, you kind of talk with this language and we witness how, how these different characters grapple with or the different communities behind the text grapple with God's presence and God's absence. Uh, I guess, is there a particular life in scripture or, or communities in scripture who's grappling really spoke with you? And uh, yeah, how, how have you kind of recommend like journeying with these characters, you know, and in that and finding and living in the tension of their grapple? Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've always been fascinated by the story of Esau and mm -hmm. devoted a, a chapter in, in the book to that um, because it, there, there is something about those questions about our identity and who we are and our relationship to one another that is so, so beautifully complicated in, in the life of Esau and Jacob, you know, twins and this prophecy that comes about and is it heard correctly? Is it misheard? Is it, you know, is there a sort of inevitability that's been put into action and where is God in the midst of that? And this sort of sense of fate and destiny and, and then God reconciling all things in the end. Um, and so I, you know, I, as I think about our own work that we have to do as the church in our um, relationship with our, our Jewish and our Islamic um, siblings mm -hmm. and, and what it means to, to wrestle with our, our identity and as distinct and, and yet the places of overlap and, and how I would always hope that that, that at the end of the day, no matter how those complications look, that we are showing up for one another, that um, the people from the Islamic Association of Raleigh or Beth, Beth Shalom 
synagogue could say, we need you to come. We need you to stand on the line with us and, and we're going to be here for you. And that's the place where God is uh, in, in the midst of all of those complex things is, is uh, yeah, at the end of the day, we're there. We're there for one another when, when, when we call upon one another. Um, and I think so much of that, I resonate with that in the story of Jacob and Esau in particular. Mm. And what's interesting is as you develop the, the Jacob and Esau story, you then kind of talk about the way that uh, the legacy of that is like you're in the command about the um, Amalekites and, and, and blotting them out. And so where the Jacob and Esau story ends in this Thanksgiving and, and this reconciliation, where the story of its legacy ends, ends in, in, in the command of the destruction. Uh, and one, that's good storytelling. Um, interesting stories play on the this if we take it at that level. But also, it, it, as you say, it then has to make us interrogate what are the, the legacies that have led to our current uh, enemies or our current situations of dysfunction and you know, our current people we long for their desire and, and what are the, the pathways to that, which, you know, any historian will tell you that usually the people your country is warring with now we are allies, not that much. Um, yeah. So, so how I guess is you know, as what may apply for a bit more here, just that that the way that legacy works out, and the way you kind of drew that into your yeah, discussion in the book on interrogating ourselves now and then. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, what I hear a lot in the story of the Amalekites are how do we think about enemies, and what is the role of enmity that is supposed to be in our our sort of life as political beings, um, broadly speaking, and and I, you know, one of the, one of, something I, I I often say that it would be hard for me to take the Bible seriously if there weren't there weren't stories like the um, the Amalekites in in it. If everything just sort of so happily just resolved itself in the end, and everyone goes skipping off into the into the sunset. Um, but but people have have enemies and and that's real and and to ask people to not recognize uh, and not be able to name an enemy is to to deny their oppression and and so to be able to as and I think the rabbis have been so helpful in into even contemporary Jewish Jewish uh, thinking that what the Amalekites symbolize is that is for them the the enmity of the Jews, a sort of anti-Semitism that has just plagues the Jewish people wherever they go, um, and and to be able to recognize that 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 history is within you, um, and that you need people to stand with you, um, and. I think that's a calling to those who want to be in solidarity, um, co-conspirers in in liberation um, with others, um, to be able to to allow their enemies to be our enemies in in the hopes of eventually pulling them out of their enmity. But I think that requires some truth telling about our past, right? Yeah, um, we truth before reconciliation is truth telling, and um, I think that story of the Amalekites is that, is that reminder to us of, of the work that has to be done. Um, otherwise it's just, it's cheap. It's cheap for um, people who've experienced real oppression. No, that's a hundred percent accurate. 
So you mentioned the, like, the, the interfaith solidarity, uh, and the book takes us in many places. It takes us in many places in, in, within the Old Testament, but then in our contemporary context, it takes us into that. It takes us into communities um, who are facing the, the fear of, of detention and deportation. It takes us into the uh, wonderful minds of children and the way they read the scriptures. It takes us to uh, kind of homelessness and the invisibility and isolation of, of marginalization. Um, and a bunch of other places. Uh, so that aspect of the book of, of drawing into either your own pastoral stories, your own, uh, or the stories of colleagues and, and into our contemporary climate, uh, was that kind of an intentional move or was that um, something that just kind of came through, you know, what, it just kept sparking things and you realised, well, I've done it for three chapters, so I better keep this up now. Um, how did that go? And how did you find that process um, in your in, kind of maybe feeding back into your own thinking when you start to read the text? Well, I think this is a good uh, preaching pro tip uh, that can be applied to writing as well, which is, so what? You know, it's, a, so, I mean, great. So you, you, you took this communion. So what? Like, <laughs> like, you live in this world where this, all these things are happening. And, um, and so that, the, the so what question haunts me in my in my preaching it's um it's the it's the question that calls out to me um and then I think the related question is is this good news um, and and for whom is it good news um, and so whenever I read scripture those are those are the questions that I'm asking and um I I I'm one of those people who probably would describe myself as uh, religious, not spiritual. And so there, well, I think there's a lot to be said about the, um, the contemplative traditions and um, the, that way of approaching scripture. Um, I, I want the Bible to be about the radicalization of, of the, of people in my community. Uh, I, I want it to call us to um, possibilities, political imaginations that we may have shielded ourselves from because of our own self-interest or our own sort of lack of imagination. Um, and yeah, when, when we read scripture, we're offered uh, an imaginative world and political possibilities that I think are pretty beyond a lot of what we think is possible in this life and I, i'm that's that's those are my people that's my world the people who who dream about worlds without prisons and um, who think about porous borders and and who yeah believe in a, the dignity of people in ways that that stretches us beyond our of the forms of capitalism that we have adhered to for so long. Um, so that's, that's what I want for myself. That's what I want for, for the people around me. And I think that's what God wants for us. That's really good. Um, and speaking of, uh, of religious but not spiritual, that leads well to the book of Leviticus. Uh, because I think probably a concept as, as broad as spirituality is in our current climate, so is holiness. Um, I think one of the main ways you hear that word now is as a pejorative when you're talking about something holier than thou. Uh, but the Leviticus paints a very, a very different picture of holiness. Uh, and Leviticus paints a picture of God, you know, very concerned with the, the details of our life, where, where it's going to be worked out 
in in life is worked out kind of a relationship with God and others is worked out in the details. So how did your your reading of Leviticus, and I know you kind of um, employed Mary Douglas through that chapter and her kind of correlational uh, concept, um, how did that kind of shape your thinking of holiness and, and where we see God's holiness or where we are to enact God's holiness? Well, yeah, Leviticus is such a, a fascinating book because I, I think it's um, a word, it's in definitely a place of reckoning because and, and of, of that sort of being troubled about what does it mean for for these these laws that shape life and community to also support systems like slavery and education of women and um you know, strict gender identities. And, and so, you know, I, I think we are always in sort of that tension with these scriptures. I, it's again, why I, I don't want to sort of say like, Oh, we can, we can make all of this work. Like all of this is going to work at the end. Like you're all going to feel great about this. I, you know, I think we need to sort of that, that tension is something we sit with as well. And, and I think that's okay. And to sort of feel that within ourselves and, that there are these really beautiful ways and these that holiness it becomes a reflection of uh, the God who is who is with the people um, in in and among the Hebrew people and does not forsake them and they um, that means they reject occultists and they take on this particular religious identity and it impacts how they eat and how they pray and how they wear their clothes and how they raise their children. And, um, and, and, and all of those things I think are significant for us. And it's also the, t- the tension we sit with. And, and I don't, I don't know why I just, I don't, I don't feel the need to make everything okay. I, I just, I, I, I think it's just, there's enough things in the world that are complicated that, to be able to say there's so much here and and I also wrestle with this is I think a really healthy place for all of us to be in our relationship to the Bible. Yeah, uh, 100%. I think it's really good. And giving people that permission to, <clears throat> you don't have to uh, you know, find it okay. Because I think if, if so often the polarity is you have to find it all okay or you have to walk away from it all. Right, um, yeah, yeah. This is unhealthy for so many reasons. So, kind of like, yeah, yes. absolutely. Here I am, a minister sitting sitting uncomfortably with lots, but fine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So speaking of text that sometimes do a lot of harm. So the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, now, you kind of uh, approach this text as a text that forces us to come to terms with the consuming nature of systems and violence uh, and the many different and not always black and white ways that people relate to these systems. Like there are victims... Um, with Lot's daughters, certainly. Uh, there are perpetrators, and often these perpetrators are systems, um, and that's kind of symbolised in the faceless, nameless crowd at, at Lot's door. But then there are also those who, who may not have condoned this system but benefited from it in some way and maybe reluctant to fully remove themselves from it, which, which you kind of say in some ways might be a, a, a reading of Lot and his wife who, who cannot help but to look back at perhaps what they are leaving behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you just don't give away the fun? People have to buy the book, but um, maybe if you expand on, on just on this reading a little bit, and and I guess how you work with your community 
which like all of our community, or most of our communities, particularly in countries like yours and mine, um, exists in this kind of neoliberal, hyper-individualized world. So, so how do you work with them to kind of see the system and importantly see that their place in it might not be as, well, I'm not that, so I must be like entirely good. Mm, yeah, I one of one of the reasons I wanted to take that story in particular on is that I I grew up in a tradition like a lot of people and who are my age that that weaponized that text against LGBTQ people and and I think in a similar way we were just saying it, there's sort of a sense of um, I just can't handle that story anymore. Um, I, I sort of wanted to take it back for myself because I. I did, I did sense that maybe there was something there for us um, and could there be a way for us to uh, hear, what, hear what the text is trying to say to us in relation to our own lives. And so that was an, an important exercise for me in, in a text that has been discomforting, but because of the way it has been used, not necessarily because of what it says in itself. And I say, you know, one of the at the at the beginning, I mentioned that um, I, my gratefulness to the uh, church communities for who have been significant in informing my readings of scripture. And is in the in the Mennonite tradition, we have a we're a very low church, and we ha- also have a communal ethic of interpretation of scripture. And we don't we don't have a committee who passes down to us the correct readings of our scriptures or theological principles. It's very much from the ground up. Um, so in our worship, we, we have a time after the sermon where we, it's, it's a, this ancient practice of Cygnus or um, testimony where people respond to respond to the scripture and, and share what they've heard. And, and that's, that's where we can say, yeah, I, I heard the good news in this, or I still have some questions here about that. Um, and so it's, um, we, we always think of the, the sermon as extending into this time because there, there's nothing special about me in terms of um, I'm one of uh, several different people who are gifted in that particular way to preach in our congregation. Um, and I just happen to be the person who's paid to do it on a more regular basis because we're all busy with things. Um, but the light doesn't fall on me in a special way. So, so that, and in that sense, it's, it's never sort of, Oh, wow. Pastor Melissa is like really like telling us what's up today. Like we hear back from the congregation. Oh, I I see myself here. Or when when you when you when I heard that story, I actually saw among Lot and his wife looking back at the city. Or what does this mean in light of our community having these ice raids where two hundred people are picked up from across North Carolina and. Uh, how do we think about the systems that have allowed that to take place and our participation in them? Uh, so all of our, our our readings are communal and they are um, constantly being uprooted and rerooted in new ground and planted in new ground. And and so I think that changed the changes the sort of way that I've heard scripture too. And, hearing here 
and speaking again, hearing back, speaking again, this constant process. I was, um, yeah, I was thinking about that when you, when I, when you outlined in the book, that process of, of testimony and reflection back, and then thinking about the, the redacted text of the Old Testament itself, which contains within it voices that are reflecting back on earlier ones. So an interview that's either going to go up just before or just after yours uh, with um, Benjamin Summer, who's a uh, uh, professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. Um, he's kind of talking about the way, you know, Deuteronomy is kind of the first commentary, you know, on, on exit. It's, it's, you know, uh, reflecting and trying to clarify and trying to, you know, you know shape an earlier narrative in a particular direction. Um, and he's kind of talking about Deuteronomy is written to replace um, the earlier books in the same ways that Chronicles is written to replace Samuel King's, but they've actually, uh, much to the, probably the chagrin of those writers, <laughs> it's all been kept. Right. <laughs> um, and he even talks about even within, there's, you know, a, a later scribe has come along in Deuteronomy and put in some little notes here and there. It would be like, actually, the opposite is true. Um, right. you know, so, so there's all this kind of packed in. So I was thinking about the way have you, you, you reflected on on your own church process as somehow, you know, not being the same, but reflecting in some way or standing in some sort of trajectory with whatever process that led to this redacted text full of its own uh, mm -hmm. commentary and clarification and contests and narrative and counter-narrative. Yeah. Yeah, I often say, you know, Anabaptists don't don't have essentials. You know, it's, it's very hard to sort of, because... The sort of the, the the point of our tradition is that there we're constantly revisiting what it means. It's, it's like a like a tradition of constantly becoming, um, and so I I think yeah our our scriptures definitely are reflections of that. And um, I have always loved reading the the stories in the Mishnah, especially of the of the rabbis sort of in these like basically sometimes in fights about <laughs> trying to figure out what scripture means and it means enough to them to, to really, you know, put some, put some, you know, some oomph into it. Mm. And, um, and I, I, that, that sort of passion that this means something for us and is, is something that I've, yeah, it, it certainly is a lesson that from the rabbis that has been, has been near to me and stayed with me for a long time. Mm. So uh, earlier we were talking a bit about, you know, that when we, we hold these texts, we don't have to say it's all okay. You know, we can be at odds with some of it or find parts uncomfortable. And, and, and then we also have that we stand in a tradition that has read the text in ways that some of it were going to be like, that was a great reading of the text. And some of it were like, you horribly missed the mark, to, you know, incalculably. Um, so, uh, but you also draw this idea in the text that there are some texts that are teaching us about ourselves and some that are teaching us about God. And, and a lot of the times the issue is that we've mixed those up. Um, yeah, scripture itself doesn't give us the hard and fast rubric. It doesn't switch to a different um, Karl Barth small text or um, Gideon's red letter, like, you know, to let us know which is which. Um, and it'd be very fraught for any individual or, or community in one particular time and place to do so, yeah. It is a, a you know, I think you're saying we need to be kind of reading for that and looking for that. Like, what, okay, who is this text addressing or talking about? What are we, yeah. What's the lesson we're learning here? So, how do we do it? I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you really survive with where you You know, what's, what's, what's the way? Yeah. But I think what I, 
what has what keeps me close to the Bible is that it's it's always changing. Um, that there's not, you know, I I grew up very I grew up in this tradition that again one of the ways to sort of you know, to fix anxieties about the tradition was, you know, you had the ceremonial law, but then you had the moral law. Like these are the things that stand for all time. And these are just ceremonial to, to Israel. And so we can sort of pretend that those don't matter anymore. And, and there's always ways of sort of dividing things up and, and sense of that, that we need this foundation and, um, in assurance about which parts do we take and which do we don't and which we don't. Um, and I've found that the more I read these stories, and, and I, the preaching discipline is cert, certainly like this, you can preach the same text over six years, four different times, and something completely different comes out of it. And it depends on where, what's happening in the world that day, and 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 who came into your office for pastoral care, and what disaster is happening around us, and and. Um, and that seems to be what that the mystery of that is what continually pulls me back into saying, "Oh, this is something something actually as interesting as God is um, in in Scripture." And so I, you know, I just don't know that I have an answer for that. Um, and and I I would probably ask that you or suggest that people sort of let let the text be what it needs to be for them and um but also that we have other communities to learn from as as well as we read scripture so it's not just an individual act i mean you know, um uh dr gaffney's commentary the womanist midrash has been um so influential on me and i know many others um being able to read from from the womanist perspective um and Dolores Williams reading her her writings about Hagar. I mean, I think that we're always getting this new angle on things, um, and um, those are offered to us by mujeristas and liberation theologians and womanists um, and Asian theologians, and um, and and that's what keeps it alive. That's is is that some in that in that in through the eyes of this community, we see something new, a new angle on this, on this story. And so I hope that we would, we would always keep ourselves open, um, that the questions are new for us in every generation. Mm. Yeah. Uh, first side note, if people want to hear Will Gaffney talk about her book, you can go back to episode four or five, Flood and Repeat, and check that out. Um, <laughs> and then buy the book. Um, add it to your cart along with Melissa's and, you know, yeah. you'll have a good yeah. day. Um, so, but what I was thinking about there is, you know, there's a, a big move at the moment in pockets of the church of, of this kind of retrieval model or the kind of the theological interpretation of scripture, which, you know, in some ways is trying to you know, set itself up as kind of a faithful, um, let's go back and like allow the text. But in, in some ways it seems to go, well, let's actually jump back before all these other voices started talking to us uh, from all these other perspectives. Uh, particularly all these not male voices that are talking at us. And, and in some ways it seems very you know, exactly counter to what you're saying there of, of allowing it to be open to what is happening in the world today or what new voice has been allowed to gain a, a, a platform or a microphone that didn't or, or what did just happen in, in the, you know, around the corner 
Um, and so, yeah, the, 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 this movement that seems to be growing in, in strength a lot is seemingly counter to a lot of exactly what you're kind of talking about here. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's something to be said. I mean, I, you know, I went to seminary. I've a degree in religious studies that focused on early Judaism. So it's not that I don't, don't care about the historical critical <laughs> model or that I don't think that these, um, that the, I, I do see that there's, that there's gifts to be had in, um, in, in reading the text, but I also don't think that those, um, I think it's a, it may be perhaps too of a dichotomy to say that those aren't available to one another. Like, I think at sometimes a closer reading or a slower, more careful reading actually allows for something to emerge that perhaps the, well, we just need to sort of figure out what this meant for, um, you know, either first century Judaism for Jesus or um, to know what this meant for the ancient Near East and in the context of their own religious landscape and um, that I I think that those those can go hand in hand and um yeah but but I also think scripture is living and so um being able to the the gift of scripture has always been d- the re-encounter that we have with the bible thank you for that so uh, a couple of final questions so the you often have a, an image kind of comes through a few times of scripture kind of bringing us into the life of God or bringing us into this, in, into the life. It's an, an invitational uh, image when it comes through with scripture a bit. Um, and I was thinking about some other images of scripture that I, I, I hear coming out a bit. And um, Dale Martin has one that he kind of has scripture being a cathedral that you kind of walk into and you, you, you observe the windows, you observe the artwork and you wonder at the architecture. And, and from that, it starts to shape you. Here's a few different images, I guess, of the, the water we swim in and things like that as well. Um, so I was, just, I was just curious about your kind of larger approach to scripture that, that kind of pokes through throughout the book of this, this kind of invitational, this kind of something that we come and sit around or, or, or come and sit so it can be around us almost. And, and whether um, I can probe you a little bit here for just that general kind of that's coming through the text is this idea of, you know, what is the kind of relationship of, of scripture to the reader in that kind of way, mm-hmm. an image or something like that? And I, I, often, I think that, um, you know, going back to, to Dr. Gaffney's, she starts off with this image of sitting around the kitchen table and inviting you to, to sort of take a seat at, at this table. Um, and and I, I really appreciate that that image of what scripture looks like as sitting around the table and, and having these conversations and, and sort of, and, you know, that are sometimes laughter and joy and sometimes uh, fighting it out. And, um, and I think that that's also, that's significant because much of the way that women have found a voice for biblical studies and theological studies for ye- for years before being able to be recognized in seminaries or in churches was, um, Brittany Cooper talks about this, in cookbooks and in testimonies and um, uh, at the margins or into the corners of things, like getting into the corners of things. And, and so... 
that's where I'm interested in and where people are reading scripture and where are, where the, where the, what, what haven't I heard yet? Because it hasn't made it to this comfort, comfort. Um, how are, how are my neighbors reading this who uh, just experience deportations in their community or are seeking asylum and um, who are waving signs asking for money on on the corner outside my church. Um, I think those are those are the people I want to hear around the table, uh, and I I hear a lot of other voices, but this ability to to hear outside of those spaces um, around around a table is um, that's what I want at this time in my life. Right, that's really good. So I have one last question, which is, is very much a question that I'm kind of ask myself a lot and ask anyone I get a chance to really who, who kind of wanders into this field. So earlier, right at the beginning of the, uh, the uh, interview, you talked about how you much, you know, you really love preaching from the Old Testament, prefer it in, in a lot of respects, which is great. Um, now, I'm bound by a certain ordered liberty in my church in which a gospel reading has to occur in the worship service. Uh, but I often like to ask, you know, and I'm curious, you know, having written this book and having them, having, you know, uh, worked in a few different, being a part of different church traditions, does a Christian worship service require a reading from the New Testament? Um, I, I, I'm purely based on our congregational experience. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, and I think part of that is that we are, uh, we, the, uh, the proclamation of the gospel uh, in, at least in the Mennonite church is not just the reading of the gospels, you know, it's in the prayers, it's in, um, our songs. It's, you know, I just, I don't, I don't know that we ever have gone a service without, um, encountering the new Testament at some point. Um, but I, I do think that, and um, we, we use the narrative lectionary and sort of after many, many years of the, of the revised um, common lectionary, we decided I, I needed some other things to preach on for a while. And, and it's been, it's been interesting because the, the first part of the year is of Old Testament preaching. Mm. And I, I think at first our worship commission was like, well, I guess we'll just see how this goes. And, um, hope that everybody does okay. Um, and I do think that we, we are always, th this, it is, it is so important to me that we see the, the consistency of this, of this story that leads into the life of Jesus. Um, that those are, those are, that's an intrinsic story, same God, um, in both Testaments. And, and so I, I mean, I, I certainly understand that, that sense of needing to have a formal gospel reading, but um, in my church, we have done without that. We'd like to, we're used to the heresy police coming yeah. after us in the Mennonite church. So, you know, yeah. come at me, come at uh, me. That's, that's great. I will, I will add your name to my, um, my work on the, on my pitch for the revision of Uniting and Worship too. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I appreciate the response because <laughs> I put you on the spot with a very uh, tricky question. No, right that's, the fine. End, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
Melissa, thank you so much for joining Love, Rinse, Repeat. So people right now are going to go and uh, pre-order the book. Um, Great. Please do yes, it. Make it book. Um, how else can people connect with you, support you? Uh, yeah, what else you got to plug at this point? Uh, you're always welcome to worship with us at Raleigh Mennonite Church. And I am on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and uh, I, my, I have commitments most Sundays here at church, but I'm always welcome to interact with people in other venues. Yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, yes, I hope the uh, the book does uh, yeah, exactly what you're hoping for it to do. Thank and you, Sam. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I appreciate the time.